Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main. Hope you're doing well. So I'm here with Cassandra Fairbanks, who is an independent journalist, a word that we will be touching on quite significantly over the course of this conversation, a friend of Julian Assange's who is going to bring us, I hope, up to speed, I'm sure she will, on all that is going on. Cassandra, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So you have, let's talk a little bit about your personal relationship, the last time you saw Julian, and then we'll talk about the bigger picture stuff of, of what's going on. So the last time that I saw Julian was March 25th. Um, I visited him a lot over the past year or so, maybe a little more than a year. But um, this time was very different. They, this was a few weeks before his arrest, or two and a half weeks before. And he, they locked me into a room, the Ecuadorian embassy staff did. And while I was locked in the room, Julian got into a big fight with the ambassador. He was saying that, you know, they're acting as agents of the U.S. government, that um, they had been surveilling him and they were trying to surveil him meeting with me so that I wouldn't be able to report on his treatment and what they were doing to him there. Um, and so at that point, things escalated pretty considerably quickly. He, um, he had only spoke to the ambassador there twice prior to that. Or no, this was the second time, I'm sorry. And they were in the same building every single day. And so um, the hostility there, I guess, catapulted. And he was arrested a couple weeks later. Things have seemed somewhat stable for the past six or seven years with him. And by stable, I don't mean not horrifying. It is horrifying. It is a form of solitary confinement, of course. It is denial of dental care and, and health care as a whole, which is egregious. And you would be um, probably thrown in jail for treating a prisoner of war in such a manner. But things had seemed relatively even, even Stephen, kind of stable. Do you have any idea what may have changed other than maybe Ecuador getting $4.2 billion from the IMF? What do you think might have changed to alter the parameters at the moment? Well, Lenin Moreno was elected president and he was not, he's the same party as the, the previous president, but he is completely different politically. And he did not approve of Julian having um, asylum. He didn't want him in there. He didn't want Ecuador to be taking care of him. And so he had been looking for a reason to get him out since he's been elected. Um, they fired all the embassy staff. The, the ones that were friendly with Julian. He had a lot of people that he was really close to that worked there and that cared about the cause and were happy that he was there. And they got rid of them and replaced them with this new hostile staff. Um, and the difference in even how they treated visitors was crazy. When I visited him the first time, I remember being like, wow, this is so great. He has so many cool people around him and they really care about this. And that's good because at least he has people to talk to. Um, and then... By the time I visited um, this past January, things had just changed completely. Um, so I think that they had been looking for a reason to get rid of him. And um, they wanted to sweeten the pot a little bit, so they sold him for an IMF loan. It is uh, astonishing how he gathers these sort of fair-weather friends. In other words, if what Julian is releasing is serving a particular political end, people love him. And then if it doesn't seem to serve a particular political end or his usefulness has come to an end, they suddenly don't know him from Adam and he's just some crazy uncle locked in a cupboard. Do you think that that's happened with the current administration as well? Yes. 
I absolutely think it has. And it really bothers me on a lot of levels. I know people are getting really tired of seeing me complaining about Trump now on Twitter, but I voted for him and I supported him and I've I write for a pro-Trump outlet. I've defended him relentlessly for the last three years. But this was a, a huge disappointment to me because he's constantly railing about the fake news and he's constantly railing about the deep state. And Julian has been fighting those two things for the past 12 years or whatever it was. And if he really wanted to stick it to the deep state and stick it to the fake news, the best way to do that would be supporting the real news that's outing the swamp that he claims to be fighting. And so, you know, there's been a lot of people who are like, maybe he's just, you know, playing it cool so they can pardon him later or whatever. But I have been harassing the hell heck out of um, everybody that I know who's who knows Trump or works with Trump or is in the administration or knows or is friendly with him, golfs with him. I have been blowing up their phones and it doesn't sound like that's the case at all. Yeah, I'd certainly had that hypothesis and floated it, but it is hard to know. Well, I guess yeah. you would certainly would have more knowledge of all of this. So let's talk about, because I, I gather some of the younger listeners who would have been knee high to a grasshopper when this stuff all began. Let's go back I don't know, 12, as you say, 12 years, 13 years, 14 years, and bring people up to speed on the journey of this uh, very unusual Australian as to where he's ended up in Britain's quasi-Guantanamo Bay prison. Right. Well, the first um, publication that they ever did, I believe, was um, from the Sudan, I think it was. Um, one of their leaders had put out an assassination order against um, other politicians, so that was like the first thing that they ever released. And it was a really big deal. And then since then, they released, you know, um, all the manuals and books from Scientology and various world leaders. They released um, some Chinese surveillance information. They've released things all over the world, which is why people are protesting all over the world. But it, it hasn't just been U.S. centric. Um, then... I guess in 2008, which is still before the Manning leaks, they released Palin, Sarah Palin's emails. At the time, she was very upset, but I've spoke to her since then, and she said this publicly as well. She now appreciates WikiLeaks. She understands why they did it. She said that, you know, it didn't really hurt her politically because she wasn't doing anything Clinton-ish. Um, and well, so, she, was, she, was she out of office, if I remember then? It was sort of after she had left. I think she, she got a bit tired of being uh, sued and harassed uh, as governor of Alaska. But so I think she was out of office by then, if I remember well, she, rightly. She, it was during um, the campaign when she was running as vice president with John right, McCain. Right, right. She was, yeah, she was out of, of the governorship of Alaska. So, yeah, right. and if I've heard her. I mean, she was not pleased at the time, but there has been a turnaround. Uh, I think once she's seen how much incredible and valuable and powerful information has come pouring out of WikiLeaks. So sorry to interrupt you. So we go on from Sarah Palin's emails and then oh, what? But the interesting thing about Sarah Palin's emails is that it was pretty much the same thing that they did with the Clinton, with the DNC emails and the Podesta emails. But the media response was extremely different. Um, they loved it. Washington do, 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 do you remember, sorry to interrupt again, but do you remember that they were like salivating? Oh, we got these emails and they had these yeah. long specials and WikiLeaks is doing a great service to democracy. And they were just slavering over the possibility of finding any kind of wrongdoing in Sarah Palin's emails. Well, Washington Post assembled a volunteer 
team of people who weren't even journalists who just wanted to read through the emails and report their findings. The Twitter account for that volunteer team still exists, I believe. I found it recently to make a point. But um, they had, you know, went hired or didn't even hire. They assembled volunteer crews just to go through them. They still didn't find anything salacious. But the fact that they did that while ignoring as much as possible the Clinton emails kind of shows how things played are playing out. But then, you know, after that, about, I think it was almost two years later is when they released the Manning stuff. And there had been a ton of things in between there, too. Don't forget. I mean, they're, they're, this isn't the only things they've ever done. And just, just so people understand, so it is a, a website that has an encrypted upload facility so that you can send files purely anonymously, as far as I understand it. You can, of course, get in contact with them, but it's a whistleblower direction repository site, but they don't just publish whatever they get. They go to great lengths to verify the authenticity of the information that they receive, sometimes anonymously, I suppose, with Chelsea Manning, sometimes not, and they have a 100% accuracy rate. Right. Um, and they do also have a harm reduction process in place, which is really important when we're talking about the Manning leaks and what's going to come up during the case. Um, sorry, my dog is being a jerk. No, I, I appreciate that, that even the canines are upset about this and I'm, I'm with them. <laughs> well, her name is Wiki, so. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure she leaks. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. But um, so when the Manning stuff happened, they had a huge team of people who were working on this. Um, it was massive. And it included journalists from Guardian, from just every newspaper you can think of in the world, um, not even just, you know, the UK and the US. But they had people all over the world working on this. And their goal was to, to minimize harm. So they were redacting things as they saw fit and slow dripping, uh, kind of slow dripping the release. But um, a, there was a Guardian reporter who was writing about WikiLeaks. And in the appendix of the book, he put the hash code for people to go and download the files, unredacted the complete bulk of the information, and that leaked online. So when that happened, WikiLeaks called the State Department. You can actually watch the phone call on YouTube. But um, WikiLeaks called the State Department. They were like, we need to speak to Hillary Clinton immediately. Like, we don't have a problem, but you guys have a really big problem because the unredacted files are, are going out. They're all over the Internet. And the, the State Department refused to speak to him and blew it off. And then the Manning leaks all came out. So and the so, Manning leaks, were they coming from this reporter's foolish blunder to, well, more than a blunder, I mean, catastrophe, really? Because everybody was working so hard to try and minimize any potential harm to people in the field. And then this idiot, this, this clumsy goof, uh, gives people a pathway to all of the unredacted files, and then the and, and this was was this all part of the Chelsea Manning stuff? Yeah, and then after this happened, obviously it was a huge big deal. WikiLeaks tried to sue the Guardian over it. Um, it was really bad, but the Pentagon came out and they said nobody was killed. We didn't even have to move anybody because of the leaks, and they testified this during the Manning trial as well. And so now we have senators and stuff who are coming out now that they're act they actually have Julian. They're like they got he got people killed, and it's like well the, the Pentagon probably should have testified that during the Manning trial when it was extremely relevant. Now sorry, given but, that it's somebody from the Pentagon, my open wide eyed belief in in what they're saying is not particularly strong, right. and I can certainly see why they'd say no, it was no big deal. Like they don't want to show any weakness. They don't so. 
I wonder if it's two different stories, but of course, all we can go with is what they testify to. You can't just sort of make things up, right? And I think it would have been more important for them to put Manning in prison for this than to hold it for Julian. So Hmm. I I see very little incentive for the Pentagon to have lied during the Manning trial when they were trying to throw the book at at her. But um, either way, the Pentagon then came out publicly and said that there were 300 names that should have been redacted but weren't. However... (laughs) The names actually were redacted, and they weren't in the release. And so, wait, 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 which release? The the the, the redacted one or the unredacted one? In the, either, because oh. they had already pre pre redacted it um, as part of the harm minimization thing. And so, these names actually didn't get released. And the Pentagon had come out and made this big fuss about it publicly, and hadn't even looked at it apparently. Um, and so there was a lot going on with that. It was really complicated. Did but anything now... happen to this reporter? That was a Guardian reporter, right? Did anything happen to this dude as far as like nobody ever trusting him with like even a latte order in the future? <laughs> no, he's he's been all over the place making money, trashing WikiLeaks. It's what he does. So wow. Wow. You know, I, I, I go out for lunch and I'm, oh, did I leave the stove on? And I'm like, I got to go back and check. But people can just, yeah, anyway, bypass the work. I assume tens of thousands of hours to go through these documents and, and try and redact stuff and then just, whoop, out they go. Anyway, yeah. that's uh, amazing. Amazing. So, All right. And- so the, the, the Manning stuff comes out, which is the subject, of course, of, of one of the, re- well, his main reason is the Manning stuff, why he's going to be extradited, or at least they're going to try and extradite him, but let's do post-manning pre-arrest. So um, there was a, they've put out a ton of stuff. I mean, TPP-related things, all kinds of stuff. The Panama Papers and stuff like that too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's been a lot, but then eventually the DNC leaks came out, and that's you know one of their biggest releases, obviously, and it upset a lot of very powerful people. And I, I mean, I've personally been told that there is a grand jury that's happening right now related to that, even though the U.S. government is denying it. Um, two of the witnesses last week got asked about me personally and my visits to Assange, which obviously didn't take place during the Manning stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that they're going to be going after him for that as well, even though that's not what they're telling the U.K. government, because the U.K. government will not extradite people if it's political. And the DNC stuff kind of treads that territory. Okay. Now, with regards to passwords and and hacking and so on, and we'll circle back if that's all right with regards to uh, Chelsea Manning, but the DNC stuff, he just got, right? He he wasn't uh, helping sources, as far as I understand it, you know better than I, but he wasn't trying to encourage sources and, and get sources. He just got them. And he said, look, I didn't get them from the Russians. There is this long pause. It's all conjecture, right? But there's this long pause when he's asked about Seth Rich that to me reads, reads as clear as day. It leads, reads as clear as day. Uh, and the indication seems to be that uh, given the speed of copying of the file modification, that it was a local probably USB copy rather than trying to worm its way through the n-dimensional internet between uh, America and, and Romania. So a local copy, but he didn't have any involvement with whoever that we know of of whoever provided all of the DNC emails. Is that right? Yes. Well, what we know publicly and that I can talk about is uh, Bill Binney, the former technical director of the NSA and a group that he's involved with, which is made up of veteran intelligence professionals. They've done independent forensics aside from the, the CrowdStrike analysis, which was commissioned by the DNC. They never actually gave the servers to the FBI. Um, and their 
forensic analysis is completely different. They, like you said, found that this had to have been from a thumb drive, that it had to be locally copied. But on top of that, Craig Murray, the former UK ambassador, has come out and said that he met the sources and got the information and that they were American. Um, I think that you, you can't really argue that Craig Murray, the former UK ambassador, saying that he's the one who got information from the sources um, isn't credible. And so the fact that they didn't even mention this in the Mueller report or anything like that is um, a huge red flag to me, but it's very strange. And, and Julian will never um, say who his source is. He still doesn't even call Manning a source. <laughs> he'll, he'll say my alleged source. Right. Now, um, the, the DNC stuff was a huge deal of course, in the lead up to the 2016 election. And it was a treasure trove of, of emails regarding Hillary and, and uh, debates and, and so on. Can you give those who aren't up to speed or maybe those overseas, Cassandra, just a bit of an overview on exactly how explosive and, and powerful the DNC emails were? Right, well, they revealed extreme corruption, um, bias from the DNC working against Bernie Sanders specifically. Um, they had Donna Brazil providing debate questions to Hillary Clinton. There was just their their strategies for going up against Bernie. Um, there was, you know, reporters court like coordinating with the Hillary Clinton campaign, not in a way that a reporter normally would, because normally you want your sources to like you, you want to get information from them. But this went far beyond that to the point where it was colluding. Yeah, well, and, so they were saying, were they saying like, well, I'll, I'll give you the copy, you can have a look at it, let me know if yeah. you want anything changed. It's like, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind that. You know, <laughs> reporters yeah. ever writing about me sent me whatever I could edit. I mean, I probably wouldn't take them up on it, but it would be nice to be to be asked, I suppose. Right. It was just, it was extremely unethical behavior. And, you know, it revealed a lot about the inner workings of the DNC. So at the time, I think Bernie voters were far more upset than the Trump supporters. And it was a far, I mean, I was a Bernie supporter. Um, I had switched to Trump before the RNC. But at the time, I was furious. And it was mostly like, fellow Bernie voters who were like, this is crazy, this is rigged, and we have to do something about it. So honestly, I think it helped Bernie more than it helped Trump. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is what it is, I guess. They seem I, to convenient. Sorry to interrupt. I, I also find it quite remarkable that the DNC would, of course, say, you know, we got hacked. And they would, you know, complain about this and raise a big fuss about it. And then, of course, the FBI, while not the most august institution, uh, I guess, in its uh, storied history, they say, of course, they would say, well, if you got hacked we need to see the server because we need to see the logs and we need to see whatever ports were open and we need to see any fingerprints that might be on it or anything like that, right? So the idea that you'd say, hey man, my, you know, my car was stolen. It's like, well, can we see the registration? No. <laughs> you know, right. can you tell us what color it is? No. Can you tell us right. what the make and year and model is? No. And it's like, why are you telling us if something's stolen? The idea that they wouldn't hand over the server to law enforcement, but they would rather commission someone to do an analysis themselves is really, really telling. And I think always has been. Right. And so a lot of people have thought, you know, including the uh, the intelligence professionals who have reviewed it, they they refer to Guccifer as um, a donkey in a bear suit, like a Democrat pretending to be a Russian, because um, Julian had already announced that WikiLeaks had Hillary these DNC emails and the Podesta stuff. And 
the Guccifer disappeared out of nowhere after that. And they were like, look, we have more. And so Julianne, or WikiLeaks, supposedly was like, yeah, let us have it. Like, we'll totally take more stuff. But they already had this release planned. And so a lot of, like, Bill Binney and uh, Ray McGovern and these veteran intelligence people, they've looked at it and they think that the Russian fingerprints were placed on the documents afterwards and that it was basically a big trap to try and blame the entire upcoming WikiLeaks release on Russians. Oh, that's right. So there were some fingerprints on some files that had some Russian DLLs or some Russian uh, text or characters and so on, yeah. which, you know, if you're dealing with highly professional spy networks, you, you know, <laughs> you, you don't leave your business card at the scene of the crime. I mean, it just right. to me, anybody would who would say, I mean, what would you got uh, the Chinese government had a driver for Diane Feinstein for decades who was uh, standing in for her and listening into everything. You know, the spy agencies are pretty good. You know, then, I mean, and if you wanted to throw suspicion at the Russians, you just throw some of those Russian characters in and bingo, bango, bongo. If you have people who believe it's the Russians already, it's only going to be confirmation bias. But the right. idea that they'd be that sloppy just seems like we can get all the way into the DNC. But we're just going to leave these fingerprints all over that stuff. Right. And ironically, after the election, WikiLeaks published Vault 7, which is, of course, the largest CIA leak in history. And in those documents, they talked about how they can perform a hack and blame it on another government and make it look like it was another government. So ironically, like WikiLeaks released this um, shortly after the election. And so it, there's a lot that's just very sketchy at best and extremely bizarre and um, doesn't look very good. So... I think most of what we've been talking about under American law, I mean, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, of course, but this is sort of my understanding of it. So under American law, this was adjudicated back in the 70s when the New York Times was publishing the Pentagon Papers and other things where it's like, as long as you don't steal it yourself or participate in the theft, then you can publish stolen right. documents. That's been adjudicated all the way up to the Supreme Court. I think it's fairly well settled law. So, you know, 95, 98% of what we're talking about would be covered under that, that they didn't right. have a hand in getting the documents or worming their way into getting the documents. They simply received them and therefore could publish them. So for the most part, under US law at least, they'd be in, in pretty safe ground. But then what they're working with now is a different situation with regards to the Manning leaks. Right, so they're claiming that he offered to help Manning crack a password not so that Manning could get more documents, which is the most important thing that people need to remember about this. He's not, they're not accusing him of trying to access more things or things that Manning did not have access to. Um, he, they're accusing him of attempting or offering to um, help mask Manning's identity. So it wasn't that Manning couldn't have taken the files or that they didn't have legal access to them or a right to see them. It, it was that they were trying to make it look like it wasn't Manning that had pulled them off the file, off the things. And that is something that arguably is a journalist's job. Like, you don't want your source to get caught. If your source is risking their life to give you documents, especially if it's a whistleblower, and I know people can argue whether or not Manning's a whistleblower, but um, if somebody is trying to blow the whistle, you want to protect them from getting persecuted for it. And so this hasn't been tried in a digital age, but normally 
um, a journalist helping somebody offline to protect their identity would not be considered illegal. But because now computers are involved, mm. it hasn't really been tried before, and they're figuring out what they can throw at them. Now that okay, this this is where for me the, the the shakiest ground is, and I'm with him for a sort of First Amendment and and publishing is all of that. Now, of course, you want if if you say to to Manning, hey, you should really try and cover your tracks, you know, that's one thing, right? But if you say I'm going to help you crack this password, then it does kind of sound like you're idling the getaway car, so to speak, like you're doing, would, would you sort of accept that it's possible that he may have been do, doing more than encouraging her, uh, Manning to, to cover her tracks? Or is it still within the purview of journalism? Um, well, the lawyer from the Pentagon Papers has argued that it's journalism and that that's what a good journalist should do. Um, whether or not people agree with that is up to them. I personally think that it's fine. But um, even so, he was unsuccessful in doing it. <laughs> so it's like, does it even really matter? Like, he didn't do it. What if he was just saying, yeah, I'll help you, but was just saying that? You mm. know, we don't even know if he actually even attempted to. And so it's shaky at best. And I don't think that it's worth spending $25 million surveilling an embassy for six, seven years over. Um, so I don't, I think that that's obviously not the main charge that he's going to be charged with. So I, I almost feel like arguing about it is pointless. Well, and this was uh, looked at as far as I know, this was looked back while a while, quite a while ago, because this mm -hmm. information has been known for quite some time, these sort of tech chat logs and so on. Right. And, uh, was it Obama's DOJ looked at this, uh, five or six years ago and did not feel that there was enough to pursue it. Right. They, they cited the New York Times problem. And so what that means is that if they prosecuted WikiLeaks, they would have to go after the New York Times and Washington Post and, you know, BuzzFeed. Now, everyone who published what WikiLeaks published or everyone who wrote about it and, and repeated the information, it would be like a real widening circle, right? Right. So anybody who contributed to it, to report it on it, but also other outlets who also posted leaks from the government. And all media relies on scoops and secrets. So it's a really dangerous territory to get into. And credit to Obama for, for not going after him. I mean, I know a lot of us, myself included, really hate Washington Post and New York Times and BuzzFeed and all these outlets. But it's still very dangerous to, to criminalize journalism, especially real journalism, where leaks are involved and, and secrets that challenge the government. Um, and so... I think that Obama's DOJ had made the right call, and it's pretty alarming that Trump's um, were the ones who decided to reopen the, or relitigate it or whatever, start it up, I guess. Uh, so do you have any theories, Cassandra, as to what might have changed? Um, well, I think that, honest, if I'm being completely honest, I think that Trump surrounded himself with a bunch of neocons who are not the best people, and that instead of draining the swamp, he hired it. And a lot of these people really have a bone to pick with WikiLeaks because they've been implicated in releases and things like that. Um, Clinton still has a lot of friends in, in the deep state and in the intelligence agencies, and I think that they want revenge. And I think that Trump also, I think while he is bold and he does take a stand a lot of the time, I think he also wants to be liked and he wants to be accepted by the very people who have been going after him. 
And so that's just a theory. I'm not saying it's true or not, but I, I think that he cares a little bit too much about being liked by these people and that he's looking the other way. Mm. Well, certainly if you've hired them, they they need to do stuff for you, right? I mean, they, you need to get along if once you've hired them. I mean, if you haven't hired them, who cares, right? But once you have hired them, then they do need to cooperate with you. They, you do need their help to get things done. And I guess once you've hired them, if you keep cycling out people and firing them, you can't get anything done and you get the inevitable, the administration is in chaos kind right. of articles that flow up. Yeah. But I think that, you know, Bolton and Pompeo are our deep state and the people that he's wanted to fight. And I think that he might be getting very bad advice here. Well, know. and so my concern, Cassandra, is that the goal has already been achieved. And the goal, of course, is that if somebody reaches out to a reporter with information that could harm powerful interest, that that reporter's going to look at the experience of Julian Assange and say, ah, that's a hard pass. Yeah. I mean, I've done it. People have offered me leaks before, and I'm like, mm, I don't have the legal resources for this. I'm sorry. <laughs> Happens to me fairly frequently, actually, and that sucks. It's had a chilling effect, and it's going to be even worse if he's persecuted or prosecuted. And um, I don't think that the damage can really be undone. Yeah, almost like what happens from here, I mean, other than of his huge impact to Julian and, and his uh, mother and, and friends and family herself and so on. But almost like what happens from here as far as the larger geopolitical slash journalist slash revelations from whistleblower things go, they've already kind of dammed up the conduit as it stands. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, during like when Daniel Ellsberg um, did his, his release in whistleblowing, he was looking at maybe eight years, and it would probably be, you know, far less than that, and he could confidently leak it, knowing that it wasn't going to ruin the rest of his life. Um, by putting, you know, attempting to put Chelsea Manning in prison for 35 years, Julian Assange probably going to face life in prison. They ruled out the death penalty, but I'm not sure I believe it because it was only a verbal agreement. Um, if, if you're looking at your whole entire life being over, there's not a lot of people who are going to risk that, even if they have something really important. And so eventually we're only going to have government-sanctioned media. And that's a terrifying thought. And, and what, a, um, what a possibility the internet and, and encryption and so on opened up. Because once WikiLeaks had established itself as a, an organization that could be trusted... Because, you know, let's say you have something damaging on Hillary or, or Bernie or some other Democrat, it doesn't really matter who, right? right? And you go to what you know is a pretty left-leaning press. You're not really sure if they're going to be pursuing it with, you know, they might just bury it, they might spike it, they might do any number of things. Whereas with WikiLeaks, they did seem to be quite neutral, right? So they, they leaked stuff that was damaging to Republicans and Democrats and, and all around the world. They were fairly, it seemed to me, fairly neutral when it came right. to politics. And so as an avenue where you could get information out that might go against the left-leaning media's interests, it was a pretty unique way to get information out that otherwise it seems hard to imagine how it could, would have gotten out or how it could get out now. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of news sites like Washington Post included have taken the WikiLeaks model and created pages where people can send them anonymous encrypted files. And so... Um, they're kind of 
you know, hammering the nails in their own coffins by not only being neutral about Julian's situation, but actively like aiding these smear campaigns and his persecution and things like that. Um, yeah, um, it's we're in, we're in a dangerous spot for the First Amendment right now. Yeah, yeah because <laughs> there's what you can do legally in terms of you can have a pretty good shot at it. And then there's the practical consequences. You know, it's like the deplatforming thing. It's like you could go and give a speech, but you might be charged $50,000 for security costs by the police. Like, well, you have the right to speak. It's just going to be kind of expensive. And uh, I think that's a, that's a terrible shame. And I also think it's tough for the media as well, especially because the corporate media in America in particular, of course, as you know, is just coming out of this two-and-a-half-year fever swamp mad fantasy dream of the Mueller report and the Russia collusion and, and that they've been pounding this nail into the wood forever. And they're getting so much wrong that when you look, when they look at WikiLeaks and they say, well, they've got 100% accuracy rate, they have a much higher trust rating and they've broken way more stories in a month than most mainstream media uh, have broken in, in the last five or ten years. So they really are writing about a competitor with a far better track record, with far more important scoops, and with a completely different business model, right? So they're donation-based and so on, right? Right. And that's hard to be objective about. Yeah, but they're they're digging their own graves. I mean, there's no way around it. What if they, you know, these journalists who are anti-Assange and, you know, neutral about what happens to him, what happens if someday somebody gives them Trump's tax returns? Mm. Or... You know, there's somebody in power that they don't like and they get this incredible bulk of information that could implicate them in a crime. They're not going to be able to publish it either because they're going to have this precedent set by Julian's case where they're going to go to prison for the rest of their lives. Well, so. if it's on the left, right, this, I think this is part of the, the whole thing, right, which is that if they're on the left and they're hitting someone who's on the right, and we all know, at least those of us who follow people like Daniel Horowitz, that there's quite a lot of lefty activist judges in certain places in the U.S., it's sort of like, well, for one person to lie under oath to Congress seems really, really bad. For another person to lie under Congress, it doesn't even register. So I think that they're relying upon the bias that right. sometimes That's is in the legal system to say, well, you know, we, 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 you, you have the law as a precedent, but not for us because we're on the left. Right, but that may not always be the case, and it may not always be how things are. The rights that you give up today will still be gone if we have, a, you know... A, a different president or a different government. Like what I keep telling the Trump supporters who are on the fence about Julian, I'm like, you know, Trump isn't always going to be in office. Like eventually, once we give up the First Amendment rights to a free press, you're going to be giving it up to another Obama or another Hillary Clinton. And then they're going to be able to prosecute you if you publish things that they don't like. So you, you can't just think about it as, as things are right now, even with judges. You have to think about it in the long term, which is what our founding fathers did when they made the Constitution. Like these things need to you need to be very sure before you give up a right, because it's not going to always be this way. Our, we're not always going to have Trump as president. We're not always going to have, you know, a Republican Senate. It's it, things change and politics change. and Politicians come and go. But once we give up a right, it's gone. And well, and, and um, I, I mean, I've always said this, of course, as you know, that if you want to give the government a certain power, imagine giving it to the politician you hate and fear the most, because that's sooner or later, you know, in the great carousel of democracy or the republic, it's going to come around where the person you are most fear, most despise, 
is going to have the power that you gave to someone you thought was just so gosh darn great. Right. Exactly. Now let's talk about Sweden. I know it sounds like we're hop skipping and jumping all over the planet here, but of course for those who have heard about Julian, then they've heard about these allegations of sexual misconduct coming out from Sweden. Now of course the first thing is that if you've pissed off intelligence agencies and the next thing that shows up is a sexual allegation, that's not entirely unexpected or there's there's precedent for that, I guess you could say. Uh, in, in human history. I mean, back to Martin Luther King Jr. So let's talk a little bit about why he ended up in the embassy, what he was uh, facing coming out of Sweden. Right. So he was in Sweden and he was going to be speaking at a conference, I believe. And he stayed with this woman. She was supposed to be out of town. I don't want to go into too many of the details about it, but essentially they ended up sleeping together. Um, and then at the conference, he met another woman. He was a who was acquainted with the first woman and you know something like a week later he went on a date with that woman they ended up sleeping together the two women found out about each other they weren't very happy one woman especially was not very happy and and convinced the other woman that they needed to go to the police department because one of them said that he they had been sleeping together the whole night but he tried to sleep with her while she was half asleep and so that apparently was considered rape to them. And the other one said that the condom broke. And so they wanted um, an STD test to be done. And so um, the, the one woman ended up talking the other one into going to the police department. A rape charge was filed. The woman who went on a date with him later was like, no, whoa, whoa. Yeah, she didn't want to sign it, right? Yeah, no, she didn't sign it. And she was like, this wasn't rape. It was, you know, I thought it was bad that he'd slept with us both, but, but it wasn't rape. And even by U.S. standards, neither of them would be considered rape. It's ridiculous. But um, that was basically what happened. And then in 2013, Sweden wanted to drop the investigation completely, but UK pressured them to keep it open because obviously this was a ploy to get him into the United States. Yeah, because that's one of the reasons he went to the Ecuadorian embassy, wasn't it? Because he was going to be sent to Sweden and then he was concerned from there he was going to be sent to the States. Right. And so, yeah, that's basically what happened. And now I think that they're, the one woman is trying to reopen it now just to slander his name. And um, there was never any allegations that it was violent or that sex was uncon un unconsensual. Um, the group Women Against Rape, a feminist organization, has even come out on the side of Julian Assange on this and said that it like denigrates the term rape to call this rape. Um, so, yeah, it's it was you know, typical government stuff. <laughs> they want to get you and they're gonna. So what's his situation at the moment, Cassandra? What's he, what's he living with that we know of? Um, well, I've spoke to his mother and um, some other people this evening and found out that he has not been allowed to see his lawyer. He was arrested 11 days ago at the time that I'm talking to you right now. And he has not had any visitors, including lawyers. They've spoke to him over the phone but they have not been allowed to go to the jail. Um, it's considered the Gitmo of the UK. So we don't really know how he's doing. I know he wasn't doing very well the day after it happened, but I haven't heard very many updates since, which is alarming. And how, is it, how has it been possible that he's been incarcerated, so to speak, for so long without dental care, without health care, without, I mean, this really is, Barbaric. I mean, it's it's pre-medieval. Even even in the 
Middle Ages, you could get a doctor and a priest. Right. Well, that was one of the big concerns. You know, um, his supporters and his family and friends have always been worried that what if he had a heart attack one day and had to go to the hospital? Well, Would toothache. Just toothache, you're swallowing uh, bacteria, you're not getting your teeth cleaned. I mean, I don't care if he doesn't have any cheesecake, it's going to be a problem. Right. But yeah, there's been an issue. Like, if there was an emergency, what does he do? Does he choose to go out, get care, and possibly get extradited to the U.S.? Or does he die? Like, what do you do in an emergency? And he had to work out those plans with his lawyer and with the embassy. And the fact that he even had to do that is insane. Prisoners don't even have to deal with that. So yeah. it's been a been a rough rough journey. And... Um, I still don't know if he's had medical care now. I've tried to find out. I've, I met with his lawyer last week, and they weren't sure. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. Extradition requests can be very lengthy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've heard years sometimes. Do you have any sense of where things might go from here? And what time frame he might be looking at? Well, I think that a big part of why the charge is so light and easy and basic is to prevent a long extradition case or a large trial because there's not really much they can fight because it's just this short little five-year prison sentence, right? Um, so the UK government has given the US a two-month uh, time limit to present the charges, but the US won't really have to show everything they can do whatever they want essentially once they get them so um, whether or not they'll actually show all their cards we don't really know but he he will be able to appeal after the decision is made in a couple months and he's appearing in court via video link on may 2nd via video link i mean do they think he's going to turn into mist and, and go out through the hvac system i mean that's just astounding yeah i mean they're treating him like a terrorist and then claiming that they only want him for a five-year sentence and expecting us to believe that. <laughs> so. so what is it that you would like for people, I mean, you've been, you've been involved in this for so long, and what is it that you would most like for people to understand about what's happening to Julian? Because, you know, he's some guy, uh, a lot of people have just heard a lot about him. There are certainly larger principles at stake here that are important, but what's the most important couple of points that you wanted to get across in this conversation? I think that this is bigger than Julian, and that if you care about the First Amendment, you better care about this case, because it's going to have extreme implications no matter which way it goes. And we need we need to be paying attention. I, we could lose essentially a massive part of our First Amendment. So I think people need to remember that, because there's a lot of people who don't like Julian, or they've heard that he's mean, or they just don't like him, or they believe the smear campaigns about him being dirty or whatever. You have to remember this, this is bigger than him. It's not just about him, and it's about all of us. And it's not just reporters either, because the First Amendment in the freedom of press isn't necessarily just to protect reporters and talking heads on TV. It's protect you so that you can get information from a variety of sources and that you're not depending on the government to tell you what to believe. So we need people like that. We need people like Julian and we need to keep them safe so that there'll be more Julians in the future. Um, I think that's the most important part. And I think that people should not um, just trust that the government's going to do the right thing. People keep saying trust the plan, but what you're talking about is trusting the deep state that's been trying to throw overthrow the president for three years. Why would you trust these people? Don't trust them. 
um, get loud, speak out, share things about it, um, get involved. Yeah, that's all I'd have to say, I guess. And as far as practical steps that people can take, I know that WikiLeaks takes donations. And and what else do you think that people can do um, after they listen to this before they go to bed? Um, You can go to WikiLeaks shop. It's wikileaks.shop. They sell t-shirts and posters and everything that you can think of, tote bags. I bring my tote bag with me almost everywhere I go. And it sparks really interesting conversations, even with leftists. They've been stopping me lately being like, hey, can you tell me more about this? And they end up coming out on the right side. So it's a great conversation starter. And you'll be surprised how many people will want to talk to you about it. Um, he's following Julian's mother, Assange Misses, on Twitter. She's constantly putting out calls to action and asking for help with things, um, spreading information and combating bad narratives. Um, I suggest following her and, yeah, just get involved any way that you can. Protest. Do whatever, whatever calls some attention to it. And uh, for people who want to find your work on the Internet? Um, I write for The Gateway Pundit and my Twitter is at Cassandra Rules. All right. Well, I really, really appreciate your time. And I also really appreciate the amount of effort and energy you've put into this cause. It's, it's a powerful force of nature, and I hope it leads people in the right direction. I really, really do thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me.